At Hodder Education, we know that every geography classroom need is different, which is why we have developed a wide range of print and digital Key Stage 3, GCSE and A-level geography resources, written by the experts that you know and trust. Whether it's the award-winning Progress in Geography, Key Stage 3 online bank of resources, or our brand new set of My Revision Notes, written specifically for the exam board you deliver, we have the right set of resources to support your students. Visit www.hoddereducation.co.uk forward slash geography today to explore more. Hello there and welcome to another JogPod podcast. Today I've got two guests with me. I'm joined by Dr Tim Daly, who's Associate Professor of Physical Geography at the School of Geography, Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Plymouth, and Kate Stockings, who's Head of Geography at Hampstead School and a JogPod veteran. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us back um, and or having me back to speak about uh, climate change and the climate crisis. Well, it's such a timely podcast is this one. Um, I've, I've been following, uh, of course, what's going on at COP26. And, and I've, I've been looking at the teachers' conversations that have, have flowed backwards and forwards on, uh, on Twitter. Possible ways to tackle climate change and the climate crisis in the classroom. From, and, and I've seen comments from teachers who are doing it as a one-off lesson, teachers who are integrating it into their geography, and that's all. Some who are looking at trying to integrate it across subjects, but they're all looking for help and guidance. And I know that what you two are doing, which I think is a brilliant idea, is jointly writing a, a top-spec geography book for, for A-level students called Climate Crisis. And the idea of an academic and a teacher working together, I think it just gives that book an, an extra strength with the depth of the knowledge, where the knowledge is being created, and the ideas of how that can be translated into classroom practice for teachers who are looking for guidance and help. I also read uh, the results of a poll by a YouGov poll, just, just following the report's publication. And it, that was interesting because it talks about 70% of the UK respondents no longer believe that the case for climate change has been exaggerated. Finally, these people are now saying that the fears of climate change, have been, having been exaggerated, were definitely or probably false. And you've decided to call your book not climate change, but climate crisis. So, Kate, why did, why did you choose to call the book that? So we were, um, Tim and I were invited to do the top spec book and given a kind of rough idea that it might be timely and it might be important to do the book about climate crisis. But we were given complete freedom as to kind of how we chose to interpret that and what we chose to focus on on the book. But actually, Tim and I, um, after a lot of discussions, decided that actually there are a lot of textbooks out there that cover the causes and the impacts of climate change. And teachers would know where to turn for that sort of resource. Um, we know we can look at the IPCC reports and the summary um, documents there to really get the up-to-date science about causes and consequences. But what we felt was missing was the narrative about how it has become a crisis. Why are we now using language like the climate crisis, the climate emergency how has that changed from climate change which is what many of us were calling it only a few years ago 
So we really wanted to do something uh, hopefully unique and something very useful to not only top level A-level students, who are, of course, the main people that read the top spec books, but also geography teachers. So we really hope that teachers will be able to pick up the top spec book and improve their own knowledge specifically about this crisis and how we have reached that point over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So really interesting to work with Tim, who obviously has a wealth of knowledge uh, about that and about how we are in this situation. I think it's really hard for teachers. I had a look at the IPCC stuff when I was, because I've done two or three podcasts now around the climate crisis and around COP26, and it's taken me absolutely hours. Now, if I was teaching, it would still only be a small part of what I'm teaching because I have all the other stuff and all the assessment and everything else. So it's, I think it's really difficult for teachers to go to the original sources. Yeah, I agree. I think we have to recognise that there is now a conversation about teaching climate change, and that's really valuable. And that's happening on Twitter, that's happening through CPD events, that's happening through the great work of um, Kit, who's talking about it as a safeguarding issue, and Paul Turner, who does some fantastic work. But I think we also have to recognise that the words I want to use is kind of overwhelming. It can be overwhelming for an ordinary classroom teacher to think about how they're going to keep their subject knowledge up to date, because every other day, there is something on Twitter about changing landscape, changing science, changing impacts, and it it can be overwhelming. So I hope that we've added something to that conversation and added something to that resource space that teachers can use to ease that sense of overwhelming and something that's really useful um, in the classroom. But I definitely think we have to recognise that, yes, we should all be putting time into maintaining our subject knowledge on this massive issue, but it's a challenge and it's it's really hard for teachers to do. I think I want to ask Tim, really, why it's taken so long to reach this current level of understanding. There were figures 30 years ago that were quite serious that academics had, had their hands on and were looking at and were worried about. And I've seen stuff that's come out of America where oil companies knew that the temperatures were going to get to this level by now and either sat on it or obfuscated, perhaps. It's taken us a long time, hasn't it? I think that's right, John. At the start of this podcast, we're saying, how is it possible to to teach such a fast-moving subject? And to be honest, I think my contribution to this was the easiest part, really. I think Kate and all those A-level geography teachers out there have got the hardest bit. How do you teach something that's moving so quickly? So what, what we really wanted to do with this book was actually make it timeless. So to chart the narrative of how we got into this crisis and then ultimately how we might get back out of it. But you're right, you know, we've been, we've mentioned that we the climate science was still kind of in its infancy in the 1990s. And, you know, there may be some serious professors out there that would argue against that. And of course, you know, we had ships in the 1960s and 70s that were very expensive vessels that were going and digging large holes in the ocean crust beneath the Atlantic and Pacific. And were pulling out these time machines of sediments going uh, hundreds of thousands of years back, in fact, millions of years. And you know, we had that information kind of in the 1960s and 70s. In the 1970s, we had the first evidence that glaciations and interglacials were caused by the way small changes in the way the Earth goes around the sun. So we, we kind of had that information. But in the book, we say the 1990s was the key point because it was in the 1990s that science got together at a kind of international consensus level. And it was obliged to as part of the United Nations. So the United Nations said, can various different countries, scientists get together, please, and give us a summary of what we know. And that was, Kate mentioned it a few minutes ago, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, first report on climate change science. And in 1990, 
it celebrates. What, what do we see in that book? We celebrate an abundance of caution. And in fact, for the following three or four publications after that, over the next 17 years or so, we, we see science celebrated again as an abundance of caution. Because what scientists are is the most sceptical people in the world. And to say that there are things called climate sceptics out there would just be quite wrong. Really, they're climate deniers. Climate is the scientists who are the most sceptical, the most critical of their own work. And they won't say anything unless they absolutely believe it. And so in 1990, we had the first publication of that consensus synthesis report. And it really wasn't very clear that climate change was happening at all. John, you mentioned maybe kind of slightly hidden reports from some of the fossil fuel companies. Physics would have told us many decades ago that if you stick a heat trapping gas in the atmosphere and it's not really got anywhere to go, then you should warm up. So the physics has been around for a long time. But has the evidence been there to see it? And no, it wasn't clear. And it wasn't clear in 1990. It wasn't clear in 1995. As we say in the book, progressively, that language has changed over time, the kind of summary language in those books. And it wasn't until 2007, so 14 years ago, that it was accepted that humans might have been the major cause of climate change. And it's not until the most recent IPCC assessment that was published in August this year, so this year being 2021, August 2021, that it was finally stated, it is unequivocal that humans have changed temperatures on land, on sea, and the atmospheric composition. So it's been a long journey to get there, largely because science is very, very cautious. It does mean then, with such rapid changes, that we have to change the focus in education and change our language. Think about changing our language as quickly as that sort of idea is changing. But what does that mean for for our classroom, Kate? If, If we're changing language and we're now you're starting to, you were talking about that, using terms like climate emergency or climate crisis. How do we do that without worrying students so much that they become anxious and it becomes a a safeguarding issue? I think there's two answers to that question, really. The first part is about climate change and where it goes in the curriculum. And then the second part is about how we balance the needs of students and the anxiety that we're starting to see around climate change. So the first part about curriculum, again, up until only a few years ago, I think many of us will reflect that we did climate change as one distinct unit and felt that was sufficient. Some may disagree and some say, no, no, I was ahead of the game. But for many of us, if we're being honest, we probably did climate change as a distinct unit in perhaps year eight or year nine and then of course we visited it in GCSE and A level but very much as as separate topics. Now those who were ahead of the game perhaps have interwoven it for years but for many of us I think it's quite a recent change that we have moved towards this recognition that we now have to weave climate change throughout our whole curriculum and that might not be as formal as mapping it out into every topic but for many of us it is but for most people that's probably just recognising that it now um, is relevant in, in all areas of geography so when we're teaching development and development indicators and the development of emerging in countries, we have to talk about climate change and how that's going to change in the 21st century. When many of us are teaching factfulness, which is a very um, popular unit to talk about how Hans Rosling talks about the progress that humanity have made, we have to do a lesson about, well, hang on a second, I can't teach you all this positive global progress without recognising the impact that climate change might have on this progress this century. So I think we've definitely moved on and a lot of us have now recognised the need to interweave it 
it throughout. That's a positive thing. And that, that's very good for the students. I think there's still some way we need to go to do that at GCSE. We are, of course, constrained by the specifications to some extent. But the specifications written in 2016 don't yet have that idea. Climate change is not mentioned in the development topic. It's not mentioned in the challenges of an urbanising world topic. It should be. And it should be a, a, a line on the specification that says link this all to climate change. Now, arguably, someone would say, well, it is because it says sustainability and it says about how we should make urban living sustainable. Yes. OK, but not that's not enough really now. That's not enough to ensure that every geography teacher is having that conversation in their classroom. The second part of that question about balancing how we teach it is one that I don't have the answer to, but one that I'm definitely incredibly aware of. I think this year, particularly with COP, they came back in September, the students, and September and October was just this huge buzz, this huge build up to COP26. And there were resources everywhere about how we were going to teach it and how we were going to effectively build this excitement that something might happen. I think it's fair to say that we did all this teaching, COP's happening, we're, we're really excited at the change that's going to result. And then it's kind of felt like it's just been very flat since and the students have picked up on that and the students my students certainly have almost said to me miss you made a massive fuss you talked about this in every lesson you talked about this in form time and now you're telling me that not much has happened and they seem a little bit uh, disgruntled with that a little bit kind of unsatisfied and that to me is a small example of the big picture of teaching climate change that we really have to be careful to balance the urgency and the buzz for want of a better word with the reality that we're still not really making the progress that arguably we should be. Don't have the answer as to how you balance that. I think it's just really important that you're aware of it and that you're aware of where your students in your context are at, because some students in some schools will be starting to be very anxious at the lack of action or what they feel is lack of action. Some students aren't there yet. And some students perhaps do need more about make personal change, eat less meat, don't consume as much fast fashion. But some students have had that over and over and over again, and they know what they can do, but they're waiting for big scale change and feeling a bit fed up at the lack of it. So, yeah, very, very difficult out there for teachers to strike that balance. For me, the most important thing would be that we and we and the GA enable that conversation to happen about learning from each other about how best to do it, because this is going to be with us for 10, 20, 30, the whole of our careers. So uh, we might as well try and nail it. Do you know if there's a mapping tool for this? I'm saying that because when we did the action plan for geography, this is about oh, 15 years ago, one of the things that we did was we just, as, as part of, of one of the CPD sessions, was we took out a world map and we said, where do you go with your geography? And people plotted on where they went. And it, for a lot of them, it was the first time that they'd ever marked where they'd gone and they saw all the massive gaps. So a tool that helps you look and see, are you doing climate change when you do migration? Are you doing climate change? Just a grid so that you can be ticking, it's here, it's here, it's here. Have you, has anyone done anything like that just to help the mapping of it all? Yeah, I think many people have, and I think it's a very valuable thing to do. That does sort of lead into another issue, which is 
should this be falling onto the shoulders of the geography department and uniquely geography? Because I completely agree that a head of department should be sitting down and mapping where they're talking about climate change as much as anything for consistency across the department. Are you making sure that all of your students, regardless of who teaches them, is getting an equal exposure to this global issue? Or is there a particularly passionate um, activist in the department whose students are getting climate change every other lesson? And then there's somebody who doesn't ever mention it and so your students are getting a very different experience there but as I say part of this is a bigger issue which is hang on a second are you saying in your school and in your context that it is geography that ticks the box of teaching climate change because many people would have a massive massive issue with that with COP26 I took the approach of I did it as head of geography designing the form tutor resources but I said to staff please do this in form time please do this with you the Spanish teacher, the PE teacher, the English teacher, talking about COP26. We will do it in geography, but we don't want them to just see it as just the geography department wittering on and on and on about climate change. So that's the approach we took. My, I suppose, my issue that's on my radar is how do I repeat that? How do I keep that that conversation going with other members of staff when there aren't those big events such as COP26? Don't have the answer, but work in progress. Yeah, but it's definitely beyond geographers. It's a curriculum issue. With pressure on leadership teams, that means it's really got to be an issue for the government to look at beyond beyond just schools. I think these are some really, really interesting points that you that you don't really think about too much when you're covering your very direct syllabus in uh, or the ones that are designed, if you like, by the current research credentials of individuals at university. But it's these are really, really important points. And I hope there's some head teachers out there as well as heads of geography that are kind of listening because Kate, you've hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. You know, what are the, one of the, at the back end of the book, what we talk about is how we get out of the climate crisis and it's going to need to be taught in mathematics. So how do you write code that makes better climate models? It's going to need to be taught in technology and engineering. What are the solutions? How do we, how do we make hydrogen power? How do we, you know, carbon capture and storage? How do we develop the kind of tech that's necessary to deliver on some of those outcomes? So it, it genuinely is, as, as Kate's saying, across the board, beyond geography alone. It's just it's kind of sat in the first couple of decades on the, on the shoulders of the physical geographers. But in a, in a space which I'm slightly more comfortable with than engineering, build on Kate's point, human geography. Actually, this is a human geography problem as much as anything else. And it's about ultimately what is climate change? It's a Malthusian problem, isn't it? It's the sort of stuff we are, sort of remember being taught in GCSE. There's lots of people. The population's growing and they have a thirst for food and energy and we change the environment to provide for that thirst for food and energy and then we can talk as until blue in the face about making or decarbonizing the energy system but ultimately year on year we need to create more energy for those more people that need to live and eat and drink and do what they do and so you know kate was mentioning the key challenge there of generating useful resource and content and excitement in the run-up to cop and then it going flat afterwards and perhaps that's actually helping students understand in at all levels gcse a, a level and above about the governance of climate change i don't know how often that word governance gets used in in a level syllabuses but it's about how we how society global society has chosen to structure its response kate and i talk a little bit in the book about how we did that or how the united nations has, has led on that but primarily people got very very excited at the end of 2015 when uh the world leaders gathered together in paris and said for the first time we agree that climate change is real 
So that's the first time all the all the countries of the world had agreed it was real. And we also agreed to try and not make it too warm. So they also agreed that dangerous, in quotes, was anything higher than two degrees Celsius. But then it got flat again. And as Kate and I show in the book, we've got your year-on-year carbon emissions from 2015 have risen, with the exception of the, the pandemic year of 2020 when the world stopped briefly. But they rose. And you, you, if you're a student sitting in that classroom, you think, well, this is really, really disappointing. Why are they still going up? I thought we had an agreement. I thought everyone was shouting and cheering and waving their hands. And the truth is, they were, because they set in place a process that was due to conclude in November last year, but was was delayed one year in Glasgow, where they said, okay, this is what we agreed to do, but how are we going to do it? And it needed five years of negotiations and lots of statecraft, lots of diplomats talking to each other, lots of behind the scenes conversations, trying to understand people's needs alongside all those other things, including you know nation state needs and desires and um, making sure the most nation states aren't bankrupt, to then get to a point where people can contribute a pledge to what they hope to do later. So it's it's not immediate. The need to change is becoming more immediate, but the governance of the process is still quite long term. And that's something we can hopefully understand in, in human geography. And just finally, sorry on that point, just finally to say, Kate mentioned how you want to build in development studies and understanding that development globalisation has produced a lot of rising per capita wealth. OK, we, we recognise that globally, but now we have to make choices. And there are those that don't have that kind of wealth. And India was potentially ridiculed a couple of weeks ago at COP26 for saying we will be net zero by 2070. And, you know, a lot of if you like passionate environmental commentators said, well, that's terrible. But is it? Because others of us can maybe get to net zero and net negative sooner. And quite frankly, doesn't the population of 1.3 billion in India deserve to have at least some kind of level of standard of living um, and general electrification and all those sorts of things? So we need to see it in context. Yeah, I just wanted to um, add to that, that a key thing for us to achieve in the book was the link to human geography. Despite my degree being in physical geography, I somehow ended up doing all of the human topics at A-level. So what I wanted to achieve in the book with Tim was to make sure that the link to superpowers, the link to globalisation, the link to development is there. And at one point we talk about the Kuznets curve and we talk about um, critiques of that. And we really try and look at China and India in particular as examples of this debate around development and net zero and reducing carbon emissions. So for anyone perhaps listening, thinking, well, I I only touch on climate change in the superpowers topic of A-level, or I only teach globalisation and we we touch a small bit on climate change. Hopefully, some of the chapters in the book will be a really useful resource for you to actually tie the link with the teacher that teaches carbon and say, right, you're going to learn about climate change in a lot of detail in the carbon topics and in the water topics. But we can tie those together and we can think synoptically. And with the synoptic papers on the A-level, I would be very surprised if going forwards they didn't have quite a significant climate change focus. Because if we're asking A-level students to be synoptic of all of the topics they study, surely climate change is the lens through which they can do that. Someone's now going to pop up and say, do you have anything to do with what's on the papers? No, absolutely not. But I'd like to see a synoptic climate change focus for anyone that does have that power. It's tricky, isn't it, for exam boards, I think, 
there is a section on all of them about managing the global commons, but they are fossilised. You write the spec, it goes through all the checks, it goes into teaching. It takes teachers three years to be able to get themselves happy with, with doing that. So you're five years into it. So really, it's already five years out of date and they aren't going to change it then because teachers have got enough to do without somebody coming along and saying, well, I'm going to change the spec again now to update it. What a nightmare for teachers that is. But it, it, So it means that what we teach can quite often be, if, if we're not careful, fossilised because we're teaching to a spec that was written some years ago. I don't know what you think about that, pair of you, but I, I don't know if I've been too harsh there. No, I think we've also got to recognise that we're in the unique situation where the 2016 specs, we were just getting our heads around them in 2019. Uh, the first year where we probably felt, yeah, we've got this, 2019, we're here. 2020 exams didn't happen. 2021 exams didn't happen. So you've now had this unique situation where just as you were really getting to know what you were teaching and therefore had the freedom to say, right, where can I bring in the latest science on this? We had the pandemic. And so I don't know what the discussion discussions are out there about specifications but I imagine that's added another few years to the lifeline of these current ones because there would be understandably absolute uproar if they changed in 2022 for example and that's where it comes back to teachers and teachers having the confidence the power the time to make sure that their subject knowledge is as up to date as possible and building in as much as they can um, and the people who are able to provide the resources to make that possible Tim and I for example to do that and, and get something out there that's as useful um, as it can be. It's funny, John, you talk about fossilised understanding. and I, That's a beautiful phrase. As someone that's come from paleoclimatology, looking back in time, that's a beautiful uh, thing to fit in there. Um, celebrate it mightily. What Kate and I tried to do with this particular resource was to celebrate dynamism, I think, was to say, all right, facts are changing all the time. And it could be three or four years between you know, setting up specs for an exam and then what's known. And, you know, one of the examples in the book is what we've learned about sea level rise you know if we were teaching sea level rise five six years ago we'd be saying that as the earth got hotter the oceans expanded because the ocean got warmer that's you know kind of gcse science isn't it Boyle's law it's gases expanding volume and the ocean has done that and it has been important but we only learned last year published in nature which is one of, of course one of the best scientific journals that actually the damming the damming during the late 20th century and the proliferation of dams such as you know as one high dam three gorges dam those sorts of things 50,000 excess extra dams on the planet had prevented precipitation water getting into the ocean so actually we, we distorted the signal a little bit uh, and we've looked we've learned very recently in the last year or so that actually ice is melting and it's glacial ice that's melting and increasing sea level rise rapidly now so it moves but what we've tried in the book to do is to say well all right things will change our knowledge will change but do we understand processes so have we got a good handle on the natural causes of climate change and the role that people are having and do we understand as I mentioned a minute ago processes in the human space so how do we influence this Kate mentioned earlier that you know, students might be getting a bit upset thinking I'm, re I'm recycling everything I can. I'm trying to walk to work. I'm having meat-free Mondays. I'm doing everything I possibly can. But globally, it means nothing. Well, OK, but if you understand how we do things globally, then you can try and get in and influence that process as well. And at a school level, that could be making sure that all the all the schools in the academy or the trust are doing the same thing. So you, at, a, at, a, at a kind of an academy level or a trust level. And then going beyond that to try and influence making partnerships internationally with other schools internationally and saying, can we all do the same thing um, or something similar? 
Yeah, I just want to pick up on that dam example because I remember um, in the early stages of the book when Tim wrote it and I had to kind of question, is this is this genuinely true? Have humans building dams had such an impact or distortion on what we thought was happening with sea level rise? So for me, that's one example of how we have managed to be really synoptic in our writing about the climate crisis because that, as teachers will recognise, if you teach the water unit at A-level, is a, is a really powerful example of the water cycle being distorted but yet through expertise on climate change we've managed to link it to sea level rise and how it distorted the science so that was just a really interesting part of writing the book and a really kind of great moment for me where I just learned something that I had no idea was that significant uh, so look out for that bit in the relevant chapter. I'm going to go back to Tim and, and, and fossilised things uh, because <laughs> If I go back to when I was taught geography, we were going into the next ice age in, in A-level geography lessons within 10,000 years or, or 100,000 years, depending on the time scale. And um, it was there was no thought really of other, th- other than that of climate change. But we did look at, we looked at Maluk Milankovic, we looked at, we looked at why climate had changed in the past. I think some people have still got that in their heads because I've seen it trotted out when people have got arguments on Twitter. Oh yes, but we're going into a next ice age. This will warm a little bit and then it's going to go colder. So people, people keep those sorts of misconceptions and fossilise them in the back of their heads. But at least we were taught that the Earth's climate was, was dynamic because I knew that it had been an awful lot warmer and there are fossils in the Antarctic. Even in the 70s, we knew that. I'm going to have to ask you, Tim, to talk us through this, because the drivers for, for positive and negative feedbacks, the drivers for change, for climate change, are really quite complicated. But if you could pop that into a little, a little box for us, I think it would be really useful for A-level students to sit and listen to how you would put that, if you can, in in a few minutes rather than in an hour and a half lecture to 200 students in a theatre somewhere. I was going to say, steady on, John. That's like a, that's a whole course. We, have, have we got a semester? <laughs> uh, I, I'll, um, so, so everything you're describing, none of that's gone away and it's not going to go away. The, the natural causes of climate change, you, you mentioned Milankovic there, the way the Earth goes around the sun and, and small changes in that orbit have produced some of the biggest changes we've seen on the planet. When was the most recent rapid global warming. It was the deep glaciation 21,000 years ago. Was it faster than today? Probably. Did the planet warm up 10 degrees Celsius at high latitudes in the space of you know several decades or 100 years? Probably. Faster than it is today. So if you think about when the most when the period of most radical global warming took place, it was probably actually about somewhere 20, 19,000 years ago. Those drivers haven't changed. The way the Earth goes around the sun hasn't changed. Yes, you're absolutely right. Naturally, we should be progressively descending towards cooler conditions over the course of the next 100,000 years or so, or 90,000 years. But what's changed is there's been new agency. There's been a species on this planet that's grown to the extent that it has in terms of its population to whatever we now are now, just shy of 8 billion, aren't we? And has been, if you like, terraforming the planet, has been changing its land surface, changing its ocean, and ultimately changing its atmospheric composition, producing a new global driver of climate change. And that's us. And we can see that very clearly. So we've got a, there's a, there's a diagram in, in the book, which we borrowed from the fourth IPCC assessment from 2007. And it runs a climate model or runs several climate models based on the best understanding of the causes of climate change naturally on their own, and then runs the climate model again on the best understanding of the causes of climate change naturally with human greenhouse gas emissions and land surface changes included. And then they compare those two separate data sets 
with observation to temperature. And it's very, very clear that from around about the 1960s onwards, the only thing that can explain the recent rise in global temperatures, and of course it's different in different parts of the globe, you know, the, the Arctic, the, the high latitudes are heating much more quickly than the rest of the planet. But the only thing that can explain that temperature rise is us. And it's very clearly, it very clearly deviates from models that are run using, if you like, natural climate changes only from uh, uh, 1960s onwards. So we're pretty clear, those, those natural courses haven't gone away and we've just added new agency through um, what people have been doing. And, and is that just the burning of fossil fuels? No, it's not. Um, we've also cooled the planet, bizarrely. Our land clearance at certain places, our clearance, our deforestation of landscapes for agriculture, principally you know, several thousand years ago, but then accelerated through to the last couple of hundred years, has in some places cooled the planet by removing forests, creating a big open bare soil space when there's bare soil for parts of the year when it's not growing crops. That actually reflects back incoming solar radiation. And in those local areas, it has cooled. And people have calculated, scientists have calculated what that's done. And it's produced a significant amount of cooling in certain circumstances. In other circumstances, we've made the atmosphere dirty. So the burning of fossil fuels and other things have produced small particles in the atmosphere. Sitting in the atmosphere, very small, aerosols reflect back solar radiation, but also provide little points of condensation for clouds. So we've got more clouds than we otherwise might have done in the past. Uh, and those clouds, if they go big and tall and very, very white at the top, will also reflect back that solar radiation. So we've done things to both warm and cool the planet. So our agency has not just been to heat, uh, but the, the net effect of that has been to produce this enhanced warming, most obviously since the 1960s. It's so complicated and it leaves room. I wasn't going to even give him airtime, but Nigel Lawson's written something. This is in November 2021. Whatever the causes of the climate change madness, the effect is clear. While global warming is not a problem, the policies intended to prevent it are a disaster is what he's written. And there's some work there that they produce and show graphs of, which say, look, there was a huge amount of cooling in the 1970s, which is now what you've just explained is due to air pollution, aerosols, volcanoes, all that's there. But it makes for a really complicated analysis. And I don't know how you go about doing that in school, Kate. You've, you've got these students. You're the, the person who's who's responsible for ensuring that students don't come away with utterly bonkers ideas. And you've got the high-flying students at one end, and you've got the others where you want them to get an idea of what's going on without complicating their brains completely so that they haven't a clue what's going on. How do you do it? It's a really good question. I think it comes back to an, an answer about curriculum coherence that's the same regardless of topic, really. It's not unique to climate change. If you are teaching a topic, you have to know what knowledge you're teaching and why. Why have you selected that knowledge of the vast area of geography to teach your students? And the same is true of everything. So when you're talking about climate change and when you're teaching that unit where you first introduce it in all of its complexity before you then interweave it throughout the curriculum, when you do that first unit, are you aligned as a departmental team on what you're teaching and why? Because you are not going to be able to teach all of climate change to your students in year seven, year eight or even year nine. So what are you leaving out and what are you doing? And it comes back again to an issue of what the geography is and what the environmentalism is. And there's been a lot of writing by fantastic geography education specialists about the danger of environmentalism 
spreading too much into geography. So are you presenting powerful geographical knowledge about climate change? Have you decided that as a team? Or is there a risk that, that you are teaching more activism and environmentalism and basically teaching society's problems rather than geography? And they are, of course, really, really interwoven. And they are, of course, really hard to dissect. But that conversation, I would argue, needs to have happened. What core knowledge of climate change are you going to teach and why are you teaching that core knowledge? And then linked to that is the massive problem, which I do think is bigger than ever in climate change of the misconceptions that come with it. And I know from conversations with various geography teachers that the misconceptions are not going away. I think people who have been teaching for 20 years really hoped that by this point, the whole ozone layer climate change misconception might have disappeared. I can confirm that it absolutely has not. And so not only do we need to decide what we're going to teach them, we also need to recognise what we might need to unpack and what we might need to reteach in order to deal with misconceptions conceptions. And in the book, um, Tim and I talk about the Montreal Protocol and use that as an example. And I think it's a really powerful example to use in the classroom for optimism and say that is a fantastic example of where the world did come together. We did take global action and we did solve a problem. We then, of course, spend a good couple of pages talking about why that hasn't happened for climate change, but it's really useful to teach. However, again, we come back to misconceptions. You teach the Montreal Protocol, you teach it for absolutely the right reasons, Antarctica, um, hole in the ozone, ozone layer, action to deal with it. But you have to do that really carefully to avoid embedding that misconception further about, oh, yes, miss. Yeah, yeah. I know why you're talking about ozone, because that's that's a key part of climate change. And it just gets really, really complicated. So misconceptions are a massive, massive part of it. And, and coming back to that idea of curriculum coherence, we were talking about our rivers unit only the other day. We're teaching rivers to year eight and actually not thinking about climate change. The main reason we were discussing our rivers topic was because we wanted to contextualize it a little bit more to our inner London context. So we wanted to do a bit more about the Thames, a bit more about the Thames barrier in terms of the, the river being so important for our capital city. What that then led into, though, is actually the need to have a whole lesson where we talk about river flooding in London and misconceptions linked to the Thames barrier. And of course, that fundamentally comes back to climate change because students, a lot of students believe that the Thames barrier is there to stop London flooding through river flooding. It's not. It's there for storm surges. It's there for sea level rise. It's there for climate change. But we've got to be so careful about how we unpack that, how we teach that. We need to, as a team, be absolutely clear on what we're teaching and why, what the misconceptions are, and basically spend a lot of time unpacking it. But we can't do it all. So if we're choosing to do a whole lesson on the end of our rivers unit where we talk about the Thames, we talk about climate change, storm surges, Thames barrier, we obviously aren't teaching something else. So what have we missed out now in order to have that conversation to unpack that misconception? And these are obviously the conversations that go on daily, weekly, termly in every single school and every single department. But but are they happening? And have you had them enough as a team? That's probably the big question. Half-learned stuff is such a nightmare because it just cements itself as a misconception. So, Tim, you're going to talk me back through the 70s because I don't think I quite got that right, did I? 
No, I think you, I mean, John, it's, it's, it's absolutely clear, isn't it, that when the US um, federal government introduced the Clean Air Act in 1970, it, it kind of transformed the, the nature of pollution at that point. Why is that? Because the US was a major contributor to it. Of course it was. But interestingly, so kind of in the late 1990s, early 2000s, we've seen those levels of uh, emissions rise back up. And in part, that's because of the emergence of East Asia uh, and uh, other contributors to of those pollutants that are not necessarily signed up to a, a US federal act. So at a global level, we've, there's been an investigation as to what's been causing wobbles. So well, I guess one of the major things, you can go to a climate denial website or a, this is kind of fun thing for students to do actually if teachers want to do that, is see what the arguments are against climate change. Get on the, get on the web and have a good old look. And, and one of them is bafflingly ridiculous, but it's the, along the lines of, well, carbon dioxide goes up every year, but sometimes we get cooler years, so it can't be carbon dioxide. And that's that's just ridiculous. And it's ridiculous for a number of reasons, because there are other things, other processes taking place. And what I wanted to highlight, you know, Kate and I highlight this in the book, actually, you can see the kind of acceleration of uh, CO2 delivered from other countries and, uh, and how these things change over time. But we talk about ocean circulation as uh, as one of those things that's quite important. I think it's in chapter three. And we've learned a lot about ocean circulation. And I don't know if anyone saw or any of the listeners have, have seen the 2004 film, The Day After Tomorrow. It's kind of interesting. As scientists, we looked at it and maybe some people scoffed at it a bit. But it's what's really interesting about that film is what happens if you turn off ocean circulation. And it, of course, Jake Gillinghall running down a corridor with a killer frost behind him um, is slightly ridiculous in terms of Hollywood timescales. But actually, the processes they talk about are quite realistic. And yet, what we've learned recently, probably in the last decade or two, has been that ocean circulation speeds up and slows down quite naturally. It does it every 50, 60 or 70 years or so. And so there was a conversation among the science scientists of the world, if you like, maybe five, six years ago, as to trying to explain what they call flat spots in the global temperature record. Why was carbon dioxide rising? But for several years global temperatures not and the truth is because those two forms of agency growing greenhouse gas emissions and ocean circulation were fighting against each other and the net effect was no overall global warming and so carbon dioxide was trying to push us warmer and the ocean circulation change was actually trying to cool the planet slightly and it was fairly effective at doing that and so that period uh, that we think of in the middle of the 20th century so 1940 to the 1970s as a period of appears to be global cooling or certainly stationary levels of global temperature is primarily due to changes in ocean circulation. And then as ocean circulation sped up again in the late 70s through to the early 21st century, that's when we see this rapid rise in temperatures. And we see the two processes no longer fighting each other, but working together to warm the planet. So I'm going to get you to do a, your predictions now for the future. What, what are the global impacts, Tim, likely to be as this progresses? Given the very the various different ways that we might go, what's the what's the global impact likely to be? So the, the report that came out in August of 2021 was the report on the science. It's the sixth assessment report for what we understand to be the science. The report that will detail what we know globally about the state of global impacts will primarily be released later in 2022. That would be the Working Group 2 report. And I wouldn't want to get ahead of myself in predicting what's in there. But it's, it's funny to think about impacts. I've been teaching this to some of my students in the last uh, week or two. It's hard to get across that actually kind of changing temperatures and precipitation in and of themselves don't mean all that much. It's what it means on the ground. And it's probably what it means for us and other plant and animal species. So let's think about us in the first instance. We need food, we need water, and we need energy to do what we're doing. 
So much of our food, let's say in the UK, is imported, about 40, 50% of our food is imported. And it's quite a fun exercise to think about where that comes from. So next time you go down to your local supermarket and you buy a pack of grapes or a meat product or whatever you're buying from there, just have a look at where it's come from. And ask yourself, what are the risks from climate change to those locations? So I bought a pack of, my daughter really likes black grapes, so the dark ones, because they're really juicy and very, very tasty. And so I found some of those. And they were from Egypt. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Hot and dry. It's quite difficult to grow grapes in that country unless you've got a source of irrigation. Yet most grapes, I imagine, would come from parts of, you could get them from the Mediterranean region or perhaps sometimes shipped in as far away from Brazil or southwest United States. If you look at the climate model projections for those areas, yes, they're getting warmer, but they're also getting much, much drier potentially. Reductions up to 50-60% in terms of uh, precipitation. If we want to eat as a global society, we'll need to find food. And if we find it difficult to make that food in the places that are currently designed to make food, we'll have to make it somewhere else. And then if individuals living in those locations that may or may not rely on a sedentary form of lifestyle can't buy it from elsewhere internationally via multinational companies, then what are they going to do? So we tend to think, if we think solely and only about the UK, and there's a chapter in the book where we review the ideas that came out in the third national climate change risk assessment for the UK, which looks at flooding uh, and looks at water resources across the UK as two major things that are of interest. It's important to sort of sit back and understand that we are so globally connected, we have to understand what's taking place elsewhere. What are the risks? What are the changes in India? What are the risks changes in China? What's happening to where our food's coming from? What's happening in Brazil? What's happening in Mexico? Is your avocado going to triple in value should you be a a foodie lover. So you ask about the kind of risks and impacts. I think sea level rise is the one that most people are most confident on because it's most easily predicted and it's almost inevitable. It's just how fast it's going to be. Whereas those more complex things relate very directly to our day-to-day experience and how expensive stuff is when we go to the shop. That's why we need a global view on it. I think that's quite a quite a shocker for people to take on board the idea of, of it affecting their food and where it comes from. I don't think that's a message that many people in the in the population would even consider. I think they will get sea level rise. They'll, they'll pick up on that one. I think what you've said there is is, is really important, but and not necessarily that well thought through at all. I don't know what you think, Kate. Yeah, um, I agree. I think Tim presents a really interesting lens through which to think about it, which is your everyday life and your consumption and your food. Um, and I think we can use that with students. We can use that with ourselves to to really get get people thinking about the impacts and what they're going to be. We've all had some experience in the latter half of 2021 with a supply chain shock, which I guess we can call it. So a combination of pandemic, post-pandemic rebound, Brexit, potentially changing the number of HGV drivers we've got, heavy goods vehicles, and how we get stuff to places. And so we've seen that kind of supply chain shock. And at the point of recording as we are today, we've got rampant inflation. You know, we've got 4% or so of, of inflation. And we see that. What climate change might very soon do is start to change the, you know, the particulars of where we develop certain things. So why do we make energy where we make it in certain places? Why do we grow food where we grow it? Because it's cheap and there's a relatively large supply of labour. But if people can't live in those places, then we're going to get climate migration as well. And I think it's that kind of global dynamism, production and people and where, you know, the modes of production and labour assets move to that has got at least the political interest raised considerably in the last couple of years. I'm going to ask you one last question too about this. And it's going to be another big one, but uh, hey-ho, aren't they all? How do you think we're doing globally so far? I've talked to a few people now on podcasts 
And the, the comments have ranged from, well, it's an awful lot better than it, it could have been. And we're, we're coming back in a year's time and we're going to be looking at targets, not, not pledges, to it's absolutely dreadfully awful and we're all going to die. Look, we make a point in the, in the book that we probably shouldn't be too hard on ourselves. We shouldn't beat ourselves up over the, the global climate crisis. And why is that? Because it's taken a while for the science to get to where it's very, 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 very certain. And you have to sit that in the context of other important things. And, and you know, one of the four points I think we put in chapter two is at the point at which the world was ready to do something about the science, we had the global financial crisis and people were worried about whether they could, whether businesses, whether countries could survive bankruptcy over the next six months. And so there just wasn't the, there was something else on the radar. You know, it wasn't quite the appetite to, to move or pay billions of dollars for changes in developing countries when developed countries needed to survive. But there is an appetite to move forward. And, you know, I guess one of the threads in here is how do we maintain hope? There's there's a really fun tool, actually, that students and, and staff may watch, wish to play around with. And it was developed by the UK government about 10 years ago. It was commissioned by the original department that covered this, which was the Department for Energy and Climate Change, DEC, D-E-C-C. If you were to type into Google in one of your lessons, DEC 2050's Pathways Calculator, you'd find a fun little tool. And there's, there's two versions of it. There's, an, there's a complex one, and then there's a kind of easier game-like one that was a bit like SimCity. And it allows students to sort of to change things of well, how we're going to live our lives in the future. And it's just focused on the UK. It's how you create electricity or how you energy demand, energy supply, and what it means for carbon dioxide emissions. And the UK is now committed to, as a result of the June 2019 amendments of the Climate Change Act of 2008, is now committed to 100% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And this tool shows you how to get there. And there are different ways of getting there. You can either do it really renewably in a very expensive way, or you can do it by us all sitting in cold houses at 16 degrees Celsius um, with dogs on our lap and trying to keep warm. So there's various different different roads to, to get to Rome. But it's a really fun little tool to help people sort of maintain hope, but also understand what's necessary. And that's just at the UK level. But at the global level, a really interesting tool that's out there is another website, Climate Action Tracker. And they've been quick to explore the pledges made out of the COP26 agreement and show it for what it really is, which is not yet enough to reach the kind of commitments agreed in Paris in 2015. So it's a stepping stone, but not quite there yet. So a bit of hope, something to play around with in the classroom, but also uh, an idea of the trajectory we need to get on. So two websites that could be fun. And we'll put both of the links to those on uh, with, uh, with the podcast when it goes out. So cautiously optimistic. I'm going to I'm going to give you the last word. Right? So key takeaways for teachers. Where do we go from here? What do you suggest? I think Tim's mention of a couple of tools there to use in the classroom ties in really nicely to what a key takeaway for teachers could be. And that is that if we're going to make this teaching of this incredibly complicated topic sustainable and workable for workloads, then we as teachers need to know what our go-to resources are. So what are your list of 5, 10, 15 absolutely go-to climate change resources that you can access, that you feel um, inspired by and feel that update your subject knowledge, but are also kept up to date. So that might be the Carbon Brief Twitter feeds, it might be the IPCC summary reports. What do you find usable and helps empower you for your subject knowledge? Because as we said earlier, the risk otherwise is that it becomes overwhelming. So I would urge teachers to to go away from this uh, podcast and have a think about what they're 
key resources are that keep their subject knowledge up to date and how they're going to use those with the wider team. Obviously, I'd also encourage you to read uh, the Climate Crisis top spec book if you're interested. And um, hopefully, really interesting to all teachers, both human and physical. And hopefully, we've really, really tried to draw that synoptic nature of it all together. But I think the key takeaway is to balance that feeling of um, perhaps being overwhelmed with being empowered to teach it as best we possibly can and engage with the conversation, engage with the opportunities of the GA, of the RGS, of other organisations to improve your subject knowledge and your teaching of it in the classroom because there is plenty out there that's going on and it's just making yourself part of that conversation. I don't know how you two have done it, but you've managed to put together a really interesting and serious analysis of of climate change. And we've done it in under an hour. Absolutely fantastic. It's been fascinating listening to both of you two. Thank you very much for taking part today. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us.